a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell. Welcome to Agriminders. Kangaroos are the most adapted animal to the Australian environment and thrive on our introduced pastures. So much so that continuous culling is needed for their own welfare and to protect crops and pastures from massive losses. Yet the food and leather resource that comes from roos is massively wasted and also undervalued. This means that professional roo hunters can't profitably collect and deliver them to processing works and they're therefore just left to either starve to death or be shot by amateur hunters and just left to rot in the paddock after the inevitable culling. Why is this the case? And what is the way forward in order to limit the wastage of a food resource that so uniquely adapted the Australian environment and also improve the welfare and sustainability of this iconic animal? To guide us through this, our agriminder is Professor George Wilson, who has worked for nearly 50 years in wildlife, environmental, agricultural and disease management. He's worked for both state and federal governments and British government agencies in scientific research, public policy and strategic analysis. He's published more than 180 papers, reviews, chapters, and he's written three books. Dr Wilson has a particular interest in kangaroo management and supporting graziers to value kangaroos on their lands. His company, called Australian Wildlife Services, has also worked extensively with Indigenous communities, farmers and graziers, natural resource managers and zoos throughout Australia. Dr Wilson's collaborated with a guy called Graham Corley to conduct their first broad-scale kangaroo surveys of Australia, and he's held many honorary positions, including as Commissioner Emeritus with the IUCN Species Survival Commission in recognition of his chairmanship of the Australian Marsupial Specialist Group. Welcome to Agriminders, George. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. George, this always has been a a strange system to me where we have a resource, a protein resource, which is clearly abundant in Australia, and we seem to so (laughs) undervalue it to the point where one group sees them as a pest that interfere with their proper agriculture, another group see them as a protected species that, that we should just let run with a priority over all our agricultural species. Where is the truth of this and how has this come about? Well, I think it really depends on uh, when you say kangaroos, just what you're talking about. We've got four large kangaroos, the eastern and western grey kangaroos, red kangaroos and wallaroos or euros as they're often known. Now, they have uh, benefited from the changes that have been made by agricultural practice to favour sheep and cattle and goats. But there's also another group of smaller wallabies and other macropods or kangaroos for which uh, these changes have been absolutely disastrous. So on the one hand, the removal of large predators, the humans, Aboriginal people really don't hunt kangaroos the way they used to. The removal of the dingo, predators are gone. Increased quantities of water and grass, tree clearing, dams and bores. And this has led to an exponential growth in these large kangaroos. But on the other hand, we find that the smaller ones have either gone extinct in many cases and uh, been wiped out by foxes and cats and those same changes to habitat that I just referred to. 
And in fact, in this class of animals, these what we call critical weight range macropods and bandicoots, we've got the highest extinction rate for mammals in the world. So in Australia, there's a population of how many um, kangaroos of the larger variety that you're referring to? Well, aerial surveys that are done uh, over the area where they're commercially harvested indicate that populations are about 40 million. Um, They go up and down again, and that's something we'll come back to because there's really big issues there. But there's circa 40 million, let's say. Uh, And this is only in the areas for which the aerial surveys are conducted, which in turn is the area where there's commercial hunting. So that figure of 40 million doesn't include the large numbers of grey kangaroos that are now up and down the east coast um, on places like golf courses where people will be aware of them. Here in the ACT, where we've got a a very large uh, population of grey kangaroos, which we all love to look at, providing they're not in front of your car late at night, uh, right through the middle of the city. And now none of those are included in that estimate of 40 to 50 million. So we're probably looking up towards 60 or 70 million of these large kangaroos in Australia. And how does that compare with the population when white man first came to Australia in 1788? Well, it's substantially increased because, as I mentioned, we've radically changed the habitat, tree clearing, water, removal of dingoes, and the fact that um, Aboriginal people are not actually dependent on those kangaroos for their and other wildlife resources for their day-to-day existence. So these animals have gone up and the small animals have gone down. But a thing we'd like to come back to is that uh, we've allowed these populations of large kangaroos to exceed the carrying capacity, and that's currently what's going on at the moment. So that population of 40 to 50 million that I talked about is in a dramatic decline as we speak, and I think possibly up towards 20... The population will have fallen to about... 25 million next time the aerial survey results are released and that means that 10 to 15 million of them have died during this current drought. This is a major animal welfare problem and it's also doing a lot of damage both to drought-stricken landscapes, um, soil degradation and the productivity of the land on which this event has taken place. As I understand it, kangaroos have adapted to our droughts and flooding rain scenario here, particularly droughts. You know, how how is that and how does that let them recover when the drought ends? Well, there is a slight difference between the eastern kangaroos, the eastern grey kangaroo, and the red kangaroo from the outback. The red kangaroo in the outback is much more of a mobile animal, and as we know, You'll get storms that will occur in one property or one region and then there'll be nothing next door. So they're pretty mobile. Um, Not so the grey kangaroos. They will move, but only on over short distances. So that's one adaptation, a capacity to move to where it's rained. And then if the uh, drought proceeds and there's no rain anywhere, then uh, the survival rate of the pouch young declines. The joeys will die in the pouch. And then eventually the um, females will stop cycling. So they've adapted to this and they're they're putting priority on themselves and so that their um, offspring uh, aren't a drain on them. This is the complete opposite of what happens with cattle and sheep where um, the um, young animal that's evolving is in the womb for much longer and that's a stress on the adult. 
uh, whereas in the kangaroo, the um, emerging next generation can be evicted from the pouch and the and the parents survive until it rains. Does that work with 18-year-old sons as well? <laughs> I don't know. They, uh, they certainly take a long time to leave home, don't they? They do. Well, but also my understanding is that they, when the times do return, they have an amazing ability to quickly produce and even uh, even eggs that have been held in limbo to... Yeah, they have them. what we call a, a delayed blastocyst. So that um, as those reproductive processes shut down, as the season deteriorates, the uh, embryo will actually be held delayed in the uterus. And then there's, uh, as soon as the green grass appears, that um, embryo will continue to develop and the, uh, the young jury will uh, be born into a world that's suddenly turned green. A major adaptation. So with a series of good seasons, the capacity to increase rapidly is profound. In bad seasons, then their capacity to shut off reproduction is also great. One of the things that we've done and is becoming increasingly a problem is that uh, we put up fences which restrict their movements. And it, uh, or conversely, the grazier who's been conserving paddock on his pastoral property and is, or maybe even just the beneficiary of a storm, suddenly finds that all the kangaroos in the region have uh, congregated on their paddock. And this is all part of this perspective that kangaroos have. So, George, you know, we've had this competition in place now for some time between sheep and cattle and kangaroos for grassland, which meant that we've had culling regimes in place to try and get these numbers down. And traditionally, there have been professional roo shooters who farmers can hire to to do the culls. You get tags which you put on them and then you sell the meat, the skins. I must say the hide, you know, I'm wearing a pair of kangaroo hide boots at the moment. I've had them 25 years and, and there's hardly a permanent mark on them. The hide is the, it's like wearing a glove on your foot on one hand, but it's, uh, on the other hand, it's so tough. And yet we, we seem to re- waste a lot of the resource once we've, we do this culling. How, why is that? Well, it's all about prices, isn't it? Prices and demand. And the, uh, the key issue here, of course, is that a lot of people uh, don't fully comprehend that when this, this population of 40 to 50 million kangaroos that we're talking about, they're not in some giant national park. They're actually uh, out there on land that's been given over by the rest of society for the raising of sheep and cattle in the pastoral areas, or in some cases they do come in and raid crops. So that these animals are there, they've got a low value uh, for reasons which we'll probably get onto in a minute, uh, and um, they're in large numbers. So what do the graziers do? They've got two options. They can either um, apply for a permit and shoot them themselves or get someone else to do it, or they can get a professional kangaroo shooter, well, become one themselves again, and uh, sell these animals into the small market that currently exists for kangaroo products. But unfortunately, that market has very low prices. The demand is low. So the average kangaroo is worth... 60 cents a kilo, that's an, for the average size kangaroo, that's $13. Wild goats these days are worth 70 to $80 and sheep over 100 and cattle are pushing up towards $1,000. So there's a phenomenal distant difference in the uh, value. Um, I read the other day that sheep are now bringing $8 a kilogram 
which is uh, a long, long way above 60 cents a kilo that you get for kangaroos. But if we leave sheep and cattle to one side, they mm. are kind of a professional, you know, animal grown for, for eating. Mm. Um, but goats, I think, are a very similar point. You know, they, they, I mean, we've all seen them in the bush. They're scrawny looking things. They run anywhere. The tax department doesn't make you account for them on your farm. Very similar to kangaroos. And yet they've been a pot of gold for Western New South Wales farmers particularly, um, simply because of their value, because of their demand overseas. And yet I've eaten goat meat and I've eaten kangaroo meat and uh, both of them require careful cooking. Why is there such a difference? Well, I don't think there's such a strong demand for goat meat in Australia. I was wandering through the supermarket yesterday and I didn't see any goat available in our local supermarket. Kangaroo was there, happily. Uh, So most of these goats, as I understand it, are going overseas and particularly to the Middle East where there's a long tradition of eating goat meat. And as these areas become um, wealthier and have the capacity to buy goats, so the value's gone up. So the the old feral goat from, say, 10 years ago, which was a pest, uh, probably ended up as pet food or shot, is now an asset, uh, very much an asset. And it's also benefited, of course, from those same changes that we talked about before, the uh, introduction of water, the removal of predators, so what you do find is the areas where goats are most numerous are the areas where there's no wild dogs or dingoes. There are hardly any, well, I don't think there, there are any at all wild goats in central Australia and in uh, those parts of northern Queensland where they've still got dingoes, they clean the lot up. One problem in that the, there is no overseas demand. I know in America, even I think in parts of America, it's even banned to import kangaroo meat and the Russians no longer bring it in, I think largely for political tit-for-tat type reasons, but ostensibly for food safety reasons. Yeah. But the other the other inhibiting factor is, of course, the animal welfare organisations. And in, when I was preparing for this interview, I was reading the websites of the various um, uh, animal rights groups. And the, the issues seem to be, first of all, the wounding issue that these animals, are, uh, when they're not shot properly, can be wounded. The fact that the joeys under the law have to be killed if any females are shot. Um, and the fact that it's a kind of national icon on our coat of arms and therefore we shouldn't be running around shooting it. Um, now, they're fairly esoteric sort of reasons, but nonetheless, they seem to carry some weight. I would have thought the wounding thing could be handled by having professional shooters doing it more and leaving the joeys alive after their mother's kill would seem to be crueler than not. But mm. nonetheless, you know, logic defies a lot of the arguments in animal rights. So where would you see those arguments lying really in influence? People that have been arguing that we should shut down the kangaroo industry are really contributing to a major own goal because uh, the consequences of not having a kangaroo industry is that the professional kangaroos shooters are taken out of the system and that's a bad thing on about two or three fronts. A, they're professional, they've got a vested interest in killing the animal quickly because they need to be able to re- the carcass. They're skilled. Um, they have to pass uh, tests put in place by state governments. Once they've killed the kangaroo, then they bring it back to a processing point where it's capable of being inspected to ensure that indeed it has been shot in the head. So what we're finding is that the decline of the kangaroo industry 
is having um, a really, really bad impact both on the way animals are killed at the, at the time that they are killed and because the demand is not there, as we mentioned a minute ago, the um, gap between the actual core population, some 50 million and the 2 million animals that are processed commercially, is absolutely enormous. The commercial processing has no influence whatsoever in these big fluctuations that are taking place in the kangaroo population itself. So what we really need to have is the complete opposite of what these um, animal rights people are arguing for. We need a much stronger kangaroo industry, one that's capable of stopping these peaks and therefore the troughs that are occurring in the uh, kangaroo population. And there, as I say, there are lots of reasons for wanting to do that. A, it's much more humane. It avoids the animal welfare problem of amateurs shooting the animals. It enables government agencies to enforce animal welfare standards. And it also um, prevents large numbers of animals dying in droughts. And that's really, you know, one animal welfare issue after another. And the people who are opposed to the use of kangaroos just don't get this. Can we come now to kangaroo meat itself and environmental impacts of, of kangaroos growing, uh, particularly mm. the, what the, the meat's like and um, all those sorts of things? How does that compare with ruminant, normal ruminant animals? Well, there's some really interesting things here. We, we've actually got a really not only a product that's adapted to Australian variable environment, but actually a very high quality product. It's The meat is high in protein, low in fat and low in cholesterol. It's got high in essential fatty acids. The leather, which you mentioned before, has got the highest strength for weight ratio of any leather and is the preferred leather in high value sports boots, football boots, and indeed the boots you're wearing. I've got a pair as well. And yet under the influence of these um, animal rights campaigns, the... Uh, Californian governments banned the import of uh, kangaroo products and also the leather into California. Now, that may not seem to be a very big issue, but in fact, it is an enormous one. So what we're finding now is that there's no demand for kangaroo leather because a lot of it was being processed in California. And kangaroo skins in uh, Broken Hill, for example, all of them are being taken to the tip. There's no market whatsoever. So we've got this wonderful leather. We've got a uniquely Australian product. We've got an animal that requires much less water to produce a kilo of meat. A kilo of um, cattle. Kangaroos require 91 litres of water to produce a kilo of meat. A cow or steer requires 300 litres of water to produce a kilo of meat. Uh, Another one I've been particularly interested in for uh, quite a while now is that beef produced 33 times more methane than cattle per kilo of meat. So we've got a big chance to contribute to a reduction in Australia's greenhouse gas liability by using kangaroo meat. So uh, the less methane sounds to me like their digestive system uh, for handling grass is quite different to cattle and sheep. How is it different? Yeah, well, they're they're what we call a pseudo-ruminant. They still live on the same 
grasses that cattle do, and but cattle have got this enormous rumen, and as I said, it's got a lot of water in it, and a whole lot sort of bubbles away in there. Kangaroos don't have that same process. They've got a sort of crossover. They will chew their cuds, so they, you'll see them uh, regurgitate the, the uh, grass and chew it and swallow it again, but it's then fermented by a different group of microorganisms, and those microorganisms don't produce methane at anything like the rate, 33 times less than cattle do. So from what you've said, George, you know, we've got better meat, 24% protein, we've got less emissions, uh, we've got Mm. better hide that we're going to get produced, Mm. lower water consumption by about a tenth of the water per kilo um, compared to beef, Uh, and we've we've just got all these tremendous advantages, plus there's no shortage of these animals, but we're still not kicking the ball in terms of uh, making that resource utilised what do we need to do to better regulate and organise the system so that we can take advantage of this resource? Well, we'd like to see, uh, and there's a group of us been interested in this for a while, we'd like to see that the kangaroo industry uh, is recognised and kangaroos are recognised as another red meat industry alongside sheep, cattle and goats. The existing industry at the moment is quite small. It gets very little money spent on research and development. So we'd like to see a much greater investment in that area. Uh, We do need to be able to better describe products that are coming from properties. At the moment, all the species are mixed up together. So if you go into the supermarket there and you buy your kangaroo, you don't know whether you're getting a a red kangaroo or a grey kangaroo or an old kangaroo or a young kangaroo or a male or a female. So that sort of product differentiation, which is so much a feature now of the other meat industries, needs to be part of that. what happens with the kangaroo product. And we think by going down that path and by learning from what's been going on in the meat industries, the other meat industries, for the last 30 or 40 years, and there's been an enormous improvement in product quality and description and care during that period. All of that needs to happen to the kangaroo industry. Now, I'm not saying what's happening at the moment is particularly bad, but as with everything, we can do it better. We've certainly got to do something to lift the kangaroo from above 60 cents a kilo in the field to make it competitive with um, sheep and cattle. Does does kangaroo meat come under the auspices of Meat and Livestock Australia? No, it doesn't. No, and that's that's a key issue. There is a, a small R and D group within AgriFutures, what used to be called Rural Industries Research and Development Corporation, but it's got a microscopic budget and just really can't address these things. And critically, graziers are not involved. It's really is the equivalent of a meat processing corporation. We, we must get graziers involved. They've got to start taking an interest in these animals because they're already out there on their properties in very large numbers. Is there a need for, I mean, I've cooked roommate. You have to be careful with it. I remember when I was very young, old stockman said to me once to cook roommate, you put it in with some hot rocks, leave it there for three hours and then actually suck the rocks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's not true. If you actually cook the roommate properly and is it rare, you know, it's an art, but is there some schooling necessary for people to learn how to do that? Uh, yeah, I think so. And, uh, and I must say that is one of the things that AgriFutures and 
really have been trying to do is to encourage people to prepare the meat properly. It's a very lean meat, so you can very quickly dry it out. You've got to look after that. It'll it'll go well in stir fries, things that just need a very slight amount of cooking and then you eat it. So it has to be done properly. There's no doubt about that. And what's the way forward with overseas markets? Well, it's never going to be the uh, uh, the major product, the major meat export. Uh, we're still talking, uh, well, it might be a large number of animals. It's still not going to compete either globally or even in Australia for that matter, nor should it. But I'd like to see it um, a specialty meat, one that gets served in restaurants on a regular basis. Uh, the equivalent of um, uh, lobsters and things like that, or barramundi, a sort of specialist um, meal that you have on special occasions. Overseas, of course, uh, yes, there is potentially a big demand in China. A few minutes ago, you mentioned the sort of cultural problems. Now, these are, they're there. Um, Many Australians won't eat kangaroo meat because it does have this cultural connection. But I worked in Scotland for a number of years and uh, the Scots have got the monarch of the Glen, uh, the red deer, a national icon, but it's still... Uh, hunted and used in a similar way in Scotland. Um, the French have been known to eat the odd chicken, uh, the rooster, and yet there's an iconic animal. And in the US, there's commercial use made of bison, and the bison is the emblem of the Department of Interior. And in fact, as a result of these uh, bison on uh, on the rangelands, there are now 10 or 20 times more bison with a commercial value on private property than there are in the US national parks. And from a governance point of view, uh, is is there more governance and regulation required from the government or do you think the landholders and the landowners should be given more realm to actually Mm. take an interest in their, their strategy for roo control at a local level? Well, what I'd like to see is the uh, clearly these animals um, belong to everybody and the um, environment departments, the wildlife services have a responsibility to make sure that they continue to be widely distributed as they are, but in um, some number that they nominate. And I think that's where we go so terribly wrong. We, we don't take into account the numbers of these animals as a impact on total grazing pressure. In the middle of the drought out there at the moment, grazers are destocking their properties. They know that they've got to match the amount of livestock, the total grazing pressure on their properties with the amount of grass that's available. Now, kangaroos don't come into that equation. It's de- it's desperately important that that change, that um, in an area, and we've been doing some work in central Queensland, there might currently be a million kangaroos and 100,000 cattle and say 2 million sheep and this is an area we've been looking at. The grazies in that area would agree to carry on behalf of all of us a population of say 200,000 kangaroos, that's a fifth of what's currently there. And then it was up to them how they manage the animals above that minimum. In other words, um, they would be given a licence to carry the minimum and then if they increase the minimum then they were able to make the best use that they wanted of those animals and be able to benefit from them. And I think that's a key step in getting the graziers to convert what they currently regard as a pest into an asset. 
I mean, what they've done with emus, is that some sort of a model we could follow? Not really, no. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, the, the emus are in a, a different situation and in that case, it, the emu farms that were established were really small-scale ventures behind wire, um, a glorified um, chicken enclosure in many cases. Well, what I'm talking about is uh, the management of a, essentially a free-ranging kangaroo across a largest area. It has to be done on a regional basis. And what we'd like to see happen is for that to be done on a trial basis, that a group of landholders, maybe 20 or 30 of them, uh, and maybe inside one of these cluster fences, something we haven't actually talked about. There are, the situation is getting to the stage now, and again it's a consequence of the animal rights fraternity, that graziers are putting up these um, fences around properties and eliminating virtually all of the kangaroos inside the fence because they've got no value. I'd like to see a group of those uh, cluster-fenced properties come together and take those steps that we just talked about to agree to carry a minimum number of animals and be licensed to do so by the departments that are responsible for wildlife conservation. But then above that number, the responsibility for their management really passed to the um, production departments, the departments of agriculture, because that's where they're currently where the, where the health standards are, are monitored, not by the environment departments, but by the health departments. Similarly, the departments of agriculture that are responsible for total grazing pressure in a regional environment for drought policy and the like should also have a responsibility for the uh, management and the oversight and increasing the value of those excess kangaroos outside the number that we all agree is the minimum. Now, if perchance one day, for some reason we don't understand, the um, kangaroo population did drop below some prescribed minimum, then the uh, wildlife departments would be able to come in and say, no, sorry, all over, we can't let this continue. Unfortunately, that's likely to happen these days because of these peaks and troughs and these catastrophic declines that are taking place in kangaroo populations because of drought and because of the pressure that the animal rights fraternity are able to bring to stop a sensible control and management of populations. George, animal welfare tends to be one of those areas which is controlled more by perception than it is by data. Um, and the perception out there can be very strong based on very little data. How how does that area, how do people become better informed about animal welfare issues and, and the actuality of them? And what sort of process is needed to improve that? Well, unfortunately, th this issue gets uh, mixed up with people who just don't eat meat. They're either vegetarians or vegans and they're really keen to see a much less meat consumed globally and by the rest of the population. But I'd like to appeal to them, appeal to these animal preservationists and say, are you really aware of the unintended consequences of your actions? I'd, I'd encourage vegetarians to become kangatarians. And indeed, there are quite a few people out there like that. They'll, they'll eat wild meat and they will, will reject completely any meat that's come from factory farms. And I must say, I'm, I'm on their side there. I think there are many aspects of intensive animal production that are really not good at all. Uh, so, in a way, I'd like to become a kangatarian in some respects as well. Because if you don't do that, the pastoralists will continue to regard roos as vermin, uh, 
untrained shooting will become more common. We'll get animal suffering through starvation and water restrictions. And something we haven't actually talked about, Indigenous Australians will miss out. Uh, Indigenous Australians were very dependent on kangaroos before, and uh, they really should be given the opportunity to continue to do so. We'll have an end up with more kangaroos and humans in car accidents, and scarce conservation resources will be diverted onto alternative control mechanisms and letting, instead of letting the commercial industry have a go. So messages like that need to be got out. Kangaroos are good for the environment. Kangaroo meat's good for the environment. And it can be and should be a high-quality product. Well, Professor George Wilson, I think you've taken our knowledge of this uh, area at 400% up off a very low base. So I really appreciate giving us the benefit of your scholarship and your 50 years of experience. And uh, let's hope we manage to do a, a bit better with our national animal in the future. And thank you very much for being our AgriMinder today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. We just look forward to a much clearer, coordinated activity between the graziers, the conservationists, and the government departments that are responsible. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, George. That's fantastic. As Dr Wilson's enlightened us, despite using 70% less water per kilo of meat and producing less than a 30th of the greenhouse gases of cattle, as well as being amazingly adapted to the arid Australian environment, we've spurned kangaroos as a precious resource and instead prefer to leave them categorised as vermin, left to die in droughts and rot in the paddock. There's therefore a real paradox for our politicians and all animal welfare-minded Aussies. Have we somehow skipped kangaroos, like other native produce, as a valuable food resource that's right under our noses, not to mention the leather, in favour of meat and hides from introduced European cattle, sheep and goats? This is quite bizarre and flies in the face of both dispassionate economics and food security as well as the emotional area of animal welfare and sustainability. Surely we need to address this so that sustainable and humane management of these iconic animals can be sensibly integrated with their value as a source of healthy, lean, environmentally friendly protein and the strongest yet softest leather in the world. I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.